are the descendants of 40 million people who left other countries, other familiar scenes, to come here to the United States to build a new life. I think it is not a burden, but a privilege. Welcome to Statutes of Liberty, an immigration podcast brought to you by Classical Immigration Law Partners. Welcome, everybody, to our podcast. My name is Oliver Yan. I'm a senior attorney at Classical. Today, we're joined by our partner, William Stock. Uh, so Bill is an, sort of an expert on the issue that we're talking about. Uh, and the issue we're talking about today is residency requirements and options for reentry to the U.S. And I think this is, this is becoming certainly a very hot topic issue recently. Uh, I think we've just hit the one-year mark almost for the COVID pandemic. And this one-year mark sort of coincides with, you know, the one-year requirement that people usually talk about when it comes to maintaining permanent residence. However, I think there are still a lot of myths and misconceptions about this requirement, and a lot of people don't know what to do now they, uh, a lot of them are outside of the U.S. for more than a year due to the pandemic. So this uh, podcast, uh, we're going to talk about the options they have and the things that they need to pay attention to when they re-enter the U.S. after long absence from the U.S. So, Bill, uh, can you say hi to everybody? Hello to everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for uh, hosting this uh, podcast on, you know, keeping permanent residence once you've gotten such a, a long, big effort to get your green card, being able to keep it, even if you need to be outside the United States for an extended period, is a really important issue. So I'm glad I can be here to talk about that. Great, great. So uh, let's talk about the general requirement, because uh, I, I think... Both of us probably have gotten a lot of clients coming to us even before the pandemic about how to maintain a green card status. They've heard about the one year, they've heard about the six months, and sometimes they think, oh, I just come back every six months. And sometimes they come up with all sorts of different explanations that they heard online. So what are the general general requirements uh, for maintaining uh, your green card status? Right. It's really important to remember that the overarching question is whether a person has abandoned their residence in the United States. The good news about the American system for dealing with this is that it is very flexible and it can take into account personal and professional and even global pandemic reasons why a person might need to be outside the United States for a long time but still really want to keep their residence in the United States. Part of the confusion here is that there are three different requirements that involve residency. The first one that we have to worry about is, what document do I present in order to get admission to the United States? And the rule there is that as long as you are making a return to the United States less than one year from the time you departed, then your green card is considered a valid entry document. The second question is whether or not you are seeking admission to the United States as uh, sort of a new immigrant, right? It, it, that has an impact on kind of how the law applies to you. 
that's where the six-month requirement comes from. Uh, the six-month requirement says that if a person has a green card and has been outside the United States for less than six months, they're actually not uh, deemed to be seeking admission to the United States, and that has some technical legal things that don't really matter most of the time. When it's more than 180 days, more than six months, essentially, uh, the person may face questioning about why they were outside the United States for so long and whether they abandoned their permanent residence from outside the United States. But it's really important for both of those uh, rules to remember that the ultimate question is whether or not the person has abandoned their permanent residence. Uh, this abandonment question can be faced even if you were outside the United States for less than six months. For example, if you are outside the United States for a total period of five years, but every six months you come back to the United States, you still run a risk that the immigration service will say, hey, wait a second, sometime in the last five years, you've abandoned that residence in the United States. So the card is one issue, the um, length of time and sort of how the immigration service treats you when you're entering is the second issue. The third issue is eligibility for being naturalized if you would like to become a citizen of the United States. There the rule is very straightforward that you have to be physically in the United States for one half of the days that are in the five years before your application. And any period of one year or more is going to break that five-year period. So really, we're not talking about naturalization rules here. We're talking about the green card rules, but it's certainly worth mentioning. Great. So I guess one common question people always have is, is there any carve out now because of COVID? Uh, are they going to have a special rule about it? You know, have they published anything uh, official about, you know, what to deal with uh, those kind of questions uh, when it comes to the COVID related uh, absence? The bad news is there is not a specific COVID carve-out. So nothing has really been published to say that the global pandemic gives people the reason to be outside the United States for more than a year. But the process when a person comes back into the United States and you know their residency is questioned is already very flexible. So what the officer has to do if a person comes back into the United States and maybe they have repeated uh, exits, or maybe they have been outside the United States for a long period of time. In that situation, the officer has to figure out where does the person really spend their time, have their ties, and where, uh, you know, are they planning to resume living in the United States? And so in that weighing test, obviously, if we are, we are always looking to show that the period outside the United States, particularly if it was a long period, had some definite ending date. Um, the global pandemic gives us a great reason to say, I couldn't come back to the United States because of travel restrictions, because of uh, uh, professional reasons, whatever it was that tied directly to this pandemic. But now that the pandemic is under control, I'm able to come back to the United States. So, you know, specifically for the pandemic, no guidance, but as a general matter on this 
larger question of whether you've abandoned your residence, uh, the pandemic would be an important temporary factor. Okay, so I guess, so the one year mark is a really important thing that people need to pay attention to. And I think we're gonna, uh, so Bill, before I ask you this question, I guess I, we want to stress that if you haven't been outside of the US for more than a year, I guess our recommendation is you should come back before you hit the one year mark instead of dealing with the consequences after one year. But uh, Bill, so in case someone has already been out of the US for more than a year, can you give us a brief overview of what uh, this person's options are? Absolutely. It's very important to understand that just being outside the United States for more than one year does not make the person lose their permanent resident status. You lose your permanent resident status if you give it up. So there's a special form you have to file. It has to be mailed to the immigration service or taken to a US consulate or embassy. If you haven't abandoned it, and if the immigration service has not made a formal decision taking it away from you, then you are still a permanent resident. So that's a really, really critical uh, uh, piece of information. The second critical piece of information is that officers at the airports or, or other ports of entry, the Customs and Border Protection officers, do not have the power by themselves to take away a person's green card. Now, the officers may try to convince a person that giving up their green card might be easier than fighting about it, uh, but they are still asking you to give up your green card. However, if you think that you have kept your permanent resident status, and if Customs and Border Protection, the Immigration Service disagrees, then you have the right to a hearing in front of an immigration judge, a formal legal process where you get to prove the ties that you have to the United States and the temporary reason why you were outside the United States. Having litigated some of these cases, I will say that the factors we like to be able to point to are that you continued to file a United States tax return. You might not have owed any U.S. taxes. You might have gotten credits or treaty benefits, which take away uh, any kind of obligation to pay taxes. But you still need to file the tax return in order to claim all of those credits. And you need to make sure that you've filed that tax return as a U.S. resident taxpayer. Beyond that, we want to see what kinds of professional, personal, property ties you have in the United States. Do you still have a home here? Do you still have bank accounts here? Uh, do you still have relatives who, who live here? And we want to look at how many ties or how temporary your ties were when you were outside the United States. Uh, were you planning a short visit, but a relative got sick? Were you planning a two-year assignment from your employer, but your employer extended it? Uh, were you planning to have to come back to the United States for business meetings, but those business meetings were canceled because of COVID? All of those are reasons which point to a long time but temporary need to be outside the United States.
When you have those kinds of factors and can present them at the port of entry, a lot of times the immigration officer will make a decision that you have not abandoned your permanent resident status and will allow you to proceed into the United States with no problems. And even if the officer wants to challenge your permanent resident status, you get the opportunity to do a formal presentation to an immigration judge about all of your ties and all of the reasons why you should be considered to have kept your permanent resident status. So I guess uh, a lot of people are curious in terms of uh, like showing up at the border directly. They are a little bit worried because you know they don't know what's going to happen at the border. Uh, and you, Bill, you just mentioned a very important point, which is the border officer really does uh, doesn't have the authority to take to take away your green card. But what, uh, and you also sort of briefly touched on the fact that they may persuade you to sign a form, which is an I-47 form, to abandon the green card. So, can you uh, go over a little bit about uh, what exactly to do, what to expect? Uh, what can they expect at the border? What exactly they can do when they're asked to sign a green card if they refuse? Uh, I know that uh, they can take away your green card sometimes. Uh, and people always ask, you know, can they deport you back to your own country or do they have to let you in and issue a notice to appear for removal proceedings? What sort of uh, things will ha- that will happen at the border if we just uh, come, 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 in ba- come back in directly? Sure. And, and look, I think people have to understand that one of the things that can happen is no questions can come up. Uh, the person, if you've been outside the United States for more than a year, and you have your green card, and your green card is not expired, the immigration officer may only ask a question or two, may ask you how long it's been since your last trip, may briefly ask you why you were out for so long, and you say, well, there's, you know, mostly it was COVID, and the officer can let you back in, all right? Now, the, uh, the next thing that can happen is, as I mentioned before, the card itself technically is a valid entry document only for one year. So if you come back without a valid entry document because you were out for more than a year, even though your card is not expired, the officer actually processes something called a visa waiver. Now, very often for green card holders, the officer does not formally prepare anything. They just make an annotation in the computer that they allowed you back in. Sometimes they will also warn you, hey, if you're gonna be outside the United States for a long time like that, you might wanna get a re-entry permit. And a re-entry permit is a document which lets you avoid this problem by having a document which says, for this two-year period, I'm gonna be outside the United States. But we're assuming you don't have a re-entry permit because you wouldn't be asking this question otherwise. Uh, If the officer decides a, a formal application for this you know, documentary exception or waiver is required, you might be required to pay a fee. Uh, however, um, uh, they would still let you back into the United States. If all of those things go badly, if the officer is just really insisting that they are going to have, uh, they're, they're going to try and show that you've abandoned your permanent residence, the first thing they're going to do is uh, take you to uh, 
the secondary inspection part. They don't have any of these discussions out at the, the first place you come to, what's called primary inspection. They'll bring you to the back room. And then they will take a statement from you. So they'll ask you questions about where have you filed your tax return? Where do you work? Do you have ties to the United States? When you give that statement, it's very important to remember to stress those parts of your life which show your connection to the United States. If the officer forgets to ask about relatives you have in the United States, you can volunteer and say, hey, I want to make sure that I talk about my relatives here. Uh, if the officer doesn't understand that you had a temporary assignment, for example, you want to make sure to correct that. The officer will give you a printout of that statement and you should read it carefully and make sure that it's accurate. Take your time with this because it's a very important document. Once you've signed off on that, the officer would then process you, as, as Oliver mentioned, for what's called a notice to appear. As a, a permanent resident coming back into the United States, uh, you will not normally be detained. Theoretically, the immigration officer could detain you because you're not uh, holding a valid visa. However, as a practical matter, permanent residents are almost always allowed to re-enter the United States and show up in court whenever their court date is scheduled. Um, the only folks who get detained are people who have criminal or security uh, kinds of, of grounds. Now, what do you expect if, if that NTA? You may also expect that the, the uh, government will keep your card, the physical card itself. But remember, the card is not your status. The status can only be taken away after this formal court proceeding. So the for formal court proceeding would come with a date that you have to go to court. And then, of course, you would immediately want to consult with a lawyer. In this situation, it's a good idea to consult with a lawyer beforehand to think about what documents to bring with you and what statement you would make if your entitlement to permanent residence is challenged. And uh, I just want to mention that uh, when it comes to NTA and the green card holder abandonment issue, Bill has successfully litigated many cases in the past. So Bill, uh, from your litigation experience on this issue, any advice you can give, any takeaways from your past litigation experience on this issue? Well, the first advice I would give is that the airport statement is very, very important because the officer and, and the, the government, when they're litigating a case, will uh, look at that airport statement and it's very hard to change any details from that airport statement, even if the person maybe misunderstood the question. So it is important to take your time and be ready to give an airport statement, which supports the fact that you are keeping your residence in the United States. The second practical thing I would say is that if the government is changing, uh, challenging your uh, entitlement to green card status, it's a good idea to significantly relocate yourself back to the United States while that challenge is going on. You do have the opportunity in the litigation to sort of give up and give away your green card, but it's harder to do than at the airport and so it may be helpful to uh, kind of make these decisions before you come to the United States if uh, you know, you're, you're find yourself in this situation. Uh, supporting documentation is going to be really important. Being able to show that you filed a tax return or owned property or were making plans to come back to the United States. 
that the reason for your employment, uh, for your being overseas, uh, was temporary, that you were on a temporary assignment, for example, um, or that you had to wrap up affairs while you were in your country. And maybe it took longer than expected to, uh, to sell property or to uh, unravel a business or to find a job in the United States. Uh, you want to be able to document all of those kinds of things. Um, and you know, persistence pays off. We've had cases like this where we had to litigate it for many, many, many years. And very often the facts sort of change as the case goes on. The, person establishes themselves in the United States better. Um, you know, there are more family members who come and join them. Those sorts of things uh, can be part of a litigation strategy to continue the case on so that it becomes clearer and clearer that the person was planning to come back all along. Okay. And in terms of what airport to get in, any recommendation on that? Well, these sorts of recommendations change all of the time. But if you have a choice, uh, there is an area of the country which has uh, very favorable uh, federal court decisions about how hard it is to take away a person's green card. Um, we call it the Sixth Circuit. It is the part of the court system which covers uh, Michigan and Ohio um, and Kentucky, that area of the United States. So. A lot of flights from around the world land in Detroit. Uh, that can be a good place uh, because it's within the Sixth Circuit if you do uh, are worried about the legal challenges. Now, there are other uh, ports of entry. If you want to think about where you would want to go to litigate the case. If you don't want to have to go to Detroit every time you have a court hearing, you might want to be in San Francisco. You might want to be in New York uh, where they see a lot of these kinds of cases. Um, you would probably want to stay away from Atlanta. Uh, you would probably want to stay away from Miami, um, from some of the places where uh, the circuit law is not as favorable to you. Okay, that's uh, that's very important advice. Uh, and I, I, I just I guess I just want to end this uh, this uh, this discussion on the direct entry with uh, some anecdotal reports that I hear, I don't know what you feel about it, uh, Bill, uh, that uh, some clients are reporting that when they go to the airport now, after uh, the COVID has uh, been with us for more than a year, the airlines now really care about how long you've been outside of the US. They seem to be become more uh, aware of the legal requirements of the US immigration law. And they ask about you know how long you've been out and sometimes we're hearing, we're hearing reports that they're not letting people board the plane. I guess there's nothing we can do if the airline makes a business decision to deny boarding uh, for someone, right? Well, I would say there are some things the airline can do, and therefore there are some things you can do to push the customer service representatives at the airline. All of the airlines have access to Customs and Border Protection. They have something called a regional carrier liaison who they can contact. Now, very often the first level customer service person will have to escalate to a manager who will have to escalate to someone whose job it is to contact CBP for the airline. But we've had several cases where individuals arrive at the airport early. The airline may have some reason why they don't want to board the person. I've had people who have an expired green card. I've had people who have lost their green cards and the airline gives them a hard time, but they can reach out to immigration. Immigration will confirm to them, yes, 
we have a record that this person is a permanent resident. It is okay for you to let them board the airplane. Once they've done that, you can fly to the United States and then deal with the uh, questions around your green card status from within the United States. So, um, you know, it's always worth it to to try, even though, as you say, Oliver, very often the, the first level person at the airline might ask some questions. There are ways to escalate it within the airline and they can have direct access to, uh, to immigration. Okay. And so we want to discuss another option here, which is uh, some some people already know, it's an SB1 returning resident visa. So the general returning resident visa requirements are very similar to uh, what Bill discussed about not abandoning your green card and you have to show that the absence from the U.S. was caused by reasons beyond your uh, personal control for which you were, uh, you were not responsible. Uh, the a process of the SB1 visa is a little bit different because you have to go to the consulate in your home country. You have to apply for the SB1 visa. You have to show up sometimes, uh, most of the times, twice for interviews, uh, and then before before you can, you know, process your immigrant visa that way. Uh, and that is something our firm can certainly do. Uh, but Bill, what do you think about the SB1 visa and you know uh, this option versus? the uh, direct entry option that we just discussed? Well, I've counseled clients to consider the pros and cons of the SB1. Anecdotally, I don't know what you've found uh, in terms of recent ones we've done, but the consulates seem more reluctant to recognize that a person was in their home country or, or another country temporarily. Um, the immigration officers, I think, in a close case where maybe there aren't so many ties, maybe it's been a little bit longer that the person was in the country, I think you you have a little bit better chance if you're standing in front of an immigration officer in the United States. Uh, a consular officer at an embassy, it just seems like you don't you don't succeed in convincing them quite as often. Now, the big advantage, I guess, of an SB1 is you you know your answer before you get on a Trans-Pacific or Trans-Atlantic airline flight. You don't have to worry the whole time about whether you're going to get in because you have an entry document. So if you're just looking for a formal answer to whether you kept your green card or not, in that instance, the SB1 might be a better answer. Um, I don't know what other thoughts you have in terms of pros and cons, Oliver. Uh, I, I, I have heard of reports, recent report, reports post-COVID that people are having denials uh, for SB1. Uh, it appears that the counselors are not really uh, going to be satisfied with just uh, the COVID answer. They always want COVID plus something, like whether it's like a health emergency, whether it's a family emergency of some sort. So uh, certainly SB1 is, uh, is, is something that is harder to obtain. Uh, in terms of the pros and cons, I feel like practically speaking, some people may prefer SB1 just because maybe they don't speak English very well. They are afraid that if they come in with this uncertainty, uh, they won't be able to deal with uh, the border officer very well, and they would rather just have everything sorted out, sort of 
before they come in. So if that's what they prefer in terms of their uh, risk uh, evaluation uh, mindset, then maybe SP1 is an option for them. But uh, I, I guess if they want a better result, maybe direct, directly coming back in is a better option overall. Uh, but what, so, Bill, in terms of um, SB1 and direct entry, can they try both? Can they do SB1 first? And then if they get denied for SB1, would they hurt them if they do the other option? Can they retry SB1 if, let's say, they do it first without an attorney, uh, they got denied and they come to us and we can maybe make the case better? Would that be helpful? Well, I wouldn't recommend coming to the United States after uh, an SB1. That would uh, an SB1 is denied, right? I think you want to have a real one-on-one -on -one conversation with a lawyer before you think about that as a as a strategy. Uh, the the other thing I would say is that if you've been denied an SB1, it may be better to go back to the consulate a second time. Uh, you do have to understand that that's a, a, a longer shot, right? The, the fact that it was denied once will weigh heavily uh, on the officer, and we aren't going to be able to change the facts that the officer focused on. So uh, if an officer, you know, thought certain things are happening and we want to go back in and say, you've misunderstood, those aren't actually happening, that can be very difficult to get them to take a second look at it. So if anyone's listening and, and contemplating doing an SB1, I would really encourage them to talk to a lawyer first because uh, the first time that you present your application is really your best chance uh, to get a successful result. Great. Uh, so I think, I hope that today's conversation is going to be helpful. Uh, so in closing, please give us a five-star review and rating as it helps people to find us. Uh, if you have any questions, email podcast at classicallaw.com with questions you would like answered. And feel free to follow us on social media, including Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and WeChat. And sign up for our emails for the latest alerts and blogs at classicallaw.com. So, Bill, thanks a lot for your time. And uh, listeners, uh, thanks for listening. And uh, we'll see you next time. For more information, visit us at classicallaw.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can email your immigration questions to podcast at classicallaw.com. The material contained in this podcast does not constitute direct legal advice and is for informational purposes only. An attorney-client relationship is not presumed or intended by receipt or review of this presentation. The information provided should never replace informed counsel when specific immigration-related guidance is needed. Thank you.